Well, hello and welcome to the latest Forever Blue podcast. Uh, it's really lovely to have you with us. Wherever you're listening in the world, I know there are people who listen in Manchester. Somebody at the game yesterday at Nottingham Forest, because we're recording on the Sunday, said, I was listening on the way down to the game, which is great to hear. But I've also been contacted with people who say, I live on the Gold Coast in Australia and I listen to you during my commute. So it's all over the world and we really appreciate you listening. Um, by the way, uh, don't forget to, to watch the video thing that I do, which is on YouTube. It's also called Forever Blue. I go to every single game and do a video with fans before and after the games. Uh, whether it's win, draw or lose, obviously a lot of people watch the, the victory at Arsenal in midweek. Less people are inclined initially to watch when it isn't a win, uh, but I was still there at Nottingham Forest. Darren Huckabee was in the crowd near me, played briefly for Forest as well. He was jumping up and down especially when uh, Folden missed that chance. So he was living all the emotions. So it's great to see that. So check that out as well. Uh, and I have to say a big thank you to Howard solicitors who are based in Ashton, Stockport and Cheshire, who specialise in family law um, for sponsoring this podcast. Really appreciate their support. Um, so if you're going through a separation or you're having problems uh, with access to your children or social services, give them a call 0161 872 have a look at their website, howardsolicitors.com or email law at howardsolicitors.com. And if you, if you are on the Gold Coast in Australia and you're thinking, what use is that to me? You know what? The World Wide Web is all over the, the World Wide Web. And you go to them and you say, I need some advice here. Got a bit of a problem. They might not be able to solve it because they're not local to you. But I bet you they'll give you the advice, especially if you say you heard about them on the Forever Blue podcast. So don't, don't be put off by that. Right. My guest tonight. And obviously, we're going to look back on the Arsenal game. We're going to look back on the Nottingham Forest game. We're going to look ahead to Leipzig in the Champions League this week. But also, there's other things to talk about too, which will become clear as we go along. So, two regulars, uh, Louisa and Harlan. Uh, but our special guest tonight is Sir Mark Hendrick, who is a City fan. And I know he's a big City fan. I see him at the games. So, although he's also an MP, um, we're not, this isn't a political show. We're not going to be talking about politics per se. But what we are going to do is we're going to introduce, not straight away, but uh, I was talking to Mark at a, at a recent game. In fact, he was on the, the vlog. And some people have talked about the timing of the Premier League attack on City, these charges that have been made, and the white paper that the Parliament was going to bring in through Tracy Crouch. Now, so Mark can give us a lot more of an insight into that than I can. I'm not an expert, but we have, uh, you know, an MP who knows his stuff. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But I want to talk, first of all, about the last two matches. Now, I write a newspaper column and I wrote that it was a bit of a strange time to be a City fan when you, you go to the Emirates and win 3-1 and the second half performance was quite awesome and overwhelming against clearly a very good Arsenal team. And then just three days later against Nottingham Forest, who, you know, are sort of mid-table, just, just below mid-table or whatever, and are fighting for the lives to stay in the top flight. And City come away, albeit they had lots of chances to win it, but come away with only a point. So there's a lot of things we can talk about there. Um, let, let's start with you, Mark. I mean, you, you obviously watch City games. I know you've got a very busy life as well so not quite sure how you squeeze it all in but nevertheless you watch City games what are your theories as to how City could be so different and whether 
the momentum and the initiative is now with City or Arsenal. Because initially I thought whoever wins the game at the Emirates becomes the hot favourites. But after this weekend, I'm not sure it's quite as clear cut as that. What do you think? Well, I don't think it is as clear clear cut as, as that. And when you listen to Pep after the game, he said we're not going to win every game till the end of the season. There's going to be um, times when either we draw or, or we lose. And um, I think whilst everybody was focused on that Arsenal game, the fact that teams are playing a game every three or four days, I think really takes it out of the teams, even teams with a biggish squad like City have got. So, I mean, if you contrast De Bruyne's performance, I think, with the way that he played at Arsenal, with how he's, I didn't see the game, game live, I just saw the, the highlights from the Forest game. By all accounts, he was very much off form and nowhere near as hot as he was against Arsenal. So I think um, fitness is a, a factor. But, uh, you know, they say, well, why did they leave De Bruyne on the bench? He's got to have a rest sometimes. And uh, it's for Pep to decide whenever that is the best time for him to have a rest. But I do think the multiplicity of games coming along makes it tough for any player. I mean, all right, you do rotate the squad, but we're not actually rotating 11 players at any time. It's probably just a handful. So um, whilst we have got resilience, I don't think every player will be firing at 100%. I must admit, I was a little bit surprised that De Bruyne, maybe Haaland, maybe Rodri, who knows who else, might have been rested at Nottingham Forest. Now, on the one hand, I would have understood that. On the other hand, I like to see the strongest team play. And I thought if we rest people at Nottingham Forest, we could run the risk of not winning the game. He did leave out a couple. Obviously, Ake didn't play and Riyad Mahrez didn't play. But essentially, I would say that that was a pretty strong team. So on that basis, did that surprise you then that City didn't get that win there? It did surprise me. But if you look at Steve Cooper's home record at Forest, it's extremely good. I don't think they've lost for the seven games before the City games at home, which um, is very different from saying well, they've won every one, as City would expect, maybe. But the fact that a team that's newly promoted hasn't been around very long in the Premier League, um, and also the you know they are getting a good defensive record. The fact that they can do that says a lot for Steve Cooper's tactics. And I think what he did by bringing on those players at the last, you know in the last 10, 15 minutes in the way that he did, and the way that they swarmed into that box when they did score the equaliser tells me that um, obviously he's played it very cagey for most of the game and then decides to go out all out for the equaliser. And I was listening to Pat Nevin on the radio, uh, Radio 5 live broadcast and he was almost predicting it before it actually happened. Um, so, um, you know, I think his tactics are right and I think he's watched City against Arsenal, he's probably watched City against Aston Villa, the way that we're playing without a left back and the way that Bernardo has been asked to fill in and sees that as a weak spot where you can overload the field uh, for a period of the game and possibly get a result in the way that he did. Someone told me a statistic, which statistics are not things I'm massively a fan of, as people who have listened to this podcast will know, but it was an interesting one that um, in the last four games, the first shot at the City goal resulted in a goal for the opposition. And that is slightly worrying, you know, especially when Forrest scored quite late so they weren't exactly peppering City's goal and it makes me wonder and I hope this isn't sacrilegious to suggest this as to whether and, and I know it's not just down to one thing but whether Edison is actually the right keeper for City because I was watching the United game this afternoon and 
early on, they were playing Leicester, they won 3-0 for anybody that, that didn't see the game. Um, David De Gea made two or three really good saves when the scoreline was nil-nil. And as I'm sitting watching that with my family, they're all saying to me, would Edison have saved or made those saves? And don't you need, you know, to occasionally in a game to see a keeper make one of them saves where you go, wow. And I'm thinking, how many times in, in his career at City, I don't say makes mistakes, although they all do occasionally, but how many times do I come away from a game thinking, wow, Edison played well today. He was man of the match. He made two or three great saves. He kept us in it when we were under pressure. I don't remember ever thinking that. So is is that a concern for you before I bring in the other two, Mark? It is, but I think he's got probably the hardest job in the team. In the, How do you maintain concentration for, for 90 odd minutes when you're hardly getting a, a sniff of the ball, a ball's not coming at you? To be a goalkeeper, you must maintain concentration for the whole of the game because in a matter of seconds, you can be at one end of the pitch and the next minute they, they try, a striker's trying to put one past you. But if that's only happening two or three times in the whole of the 90 minutes, then how can you guarantee you'll be on top of your game? Whereas if you're being regularly exercised because it's a 50-50 game and teams are up and down the field on both sides, then you'll get a lot more practice and it's easier to maintain that concentration. So I think he's got a very difficult job and he's got a very good understudy uh, who City have got now, um, the German keeper there. So I think... Um, He'll have to stay on his toes, otherwise he'll find himself being replaced because in the cup games, when his counterpart has been playing for City, um, I think he's performed very well. Let me bring in Harlan. I mean, obviously, two games uh, since the last podcast. Mm -hmm. So there's quite a lot to chew over here, really. Um, yeah. You know, the big, big game against Arsenal, followed by, in theory, what should have been a slightly easier game against Forest. What, what did you learn from those two games, Harlan? Uh, I think I've learned, or shall I say, I've learned that the thoughts I've already had all season and have manifested further with regards to the fact that there's a positive correlation in the team changing, especially that back four or back three changing or the shape at the back changing and the defensive frailties that maybe aren't being punished enough, i.e. they're not resulting in a shot from the opponent, but where I'm seeing a lot more mistakes than I've seen in a Pep side in previous years, where there was a solid understanding between a back three, back four, back five with wing backs, i.e. a three, five, two or three, you know, three, three, four, one, two, whatever, whatever you want to, however you want to look at it. But you look at, you look at this now and week on week, and it is a, it is a genius. And we, we understand that Pep is very good at, 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 you know, finding solutions for problems, i.e. You know, he found, you know, a left-wing back role for Zinchenko when he couldn't play him as a 10. He found a left-wing back role for Delph when he couldn't fit him into his midfield. He's doing the same now with Bernardo Silva. Not that he can't fit him into the midfield, just that he knows that Bernardo's tenacity, work rate, energy levels, you know, defensive astuteness and creativity when he does tuck inside are all attributes that could be utilised at left-wing back or left-back, if you want to call it that. Although he did say in a previous interview, didn't he, after Arsenal, that he wasn't playing as a left-back. He was almost playing as a lopsided midfielder. Um, but the team changing as frequently as it is doing is really affecting the defensive cohesion in our team. And if we were playing the, the, the Uniteds, the Arsenals, the Liverpools, not so much Liverpool this season, but the Liverpools, the Chelsea's, because Chelsea are, are not winning games, but they are creating a hell of a lot of chances. If we were playing against them sides and in the Champions League, 
with the, the current um, chopping and changing that we are eliciting at the back, we'd be punished a lot more. And I don't think we'd be where we are in the league. Um, we're getting away with it a lot because of the wastefulness of opposite, you know, of the opposition, of the opponent strikers, of the opponents attacking players. But we've been exposed a lot more this season um, than in previous years under Pep. And I think he knows it. And I think he's in control. But I think at the same time, he's almost panicking, thinking, you know, if, if this continues to happen, there is going to be a game where a team scores two, three or four goals and we get pumped. And we've not been beaten heavily for a long, long time. In fact, the last time I remember us being absolutely battered was in Pep's first season at Leicester, I think. The most embarrassing City performance where we were punished for every every frailty. Maybe at Everton that season as well. Everton that season as well, 4-0, Lukaku had a field there. So, but but we are we are very, very um we're very lucky not to have suffered one of them defeats this year just because of the, the amount of chopping and changing. And it, I do I do piggyback your point, Mark. You know, it is due to you know, the, the desire to keep everybody fresh. Uh, the rotation is something that Pep's employed since he, since he you know, came to the club. But with that rotation comes that risk that you are going to break bonds. You're going to break defensive partnerships. Um, you know, you, you back four or you back three or you back five should always have the most solid centre-half. And the most solid centre-half we've got for me is Ruben Diaz. And Ruben Diaz now has come back from an injury, and you would you would expect that a professional footballer of his you know of his capability and, and level would be able to play two two games a week. Uh, so is it down to the fitness levels, or is it down to Pep just trying to over tinker? And it's something that's let us down in the Champions League final before, and has happened on various other occasions as well. You make some good points, and but obviously the the big I'm I'm as big a fan of of. Bernardo Silva, as you're probably going to find. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, he'd practically be the first player on the team sheet for every single game, but not a left-back or not not dropping into that left-back area. And, and this is not meant critically against Bernardo because I love the guy, but he was at fault for the goal that ultimately got the equaliser. Not because... I'm not blaming him as such, but actually, if you watch Match of the Day, which is, of course again, for, for people outside the UK, is a highlights programme in the UK. The, the analysis which Micah Richards gave was spot on, which is that the temptation of Bernardo as a midfielder was to come out of his position and attack the ball. That's what he's very good at. But then it left a hole in, in the, the area where they then ultimately attacked and exposed Laporte, who, OK, was, was also you know, dismissed, as it were, by by Forrest. But I can't help thinking that if Ake had been playing in that left-back position, that wouldn't have happened. And City would have won nil, won one nil. And all right, they might not have still scored the, the chances that they missed. And it might not have been convincing, but they still would have got the, the win, wouldn't they? Ian, based on the on the point you just made, um, I think Pep might have already been, because of, of the speed of the substitution after the goal went in, Pep was probably already thinking about bringing Ake on to plug that to plug that gap to plug that 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 hole in that defensive unit that we were that we had on the pitch at the time. And as soon as they scored within two minutes, Ake was on the pitch and he reshaped the defence because he knew that we were weak. I think he feared that Forrest might grab a second. If Brennan Johnson would have would have you know really attacked us with intent more so with all the attributes he's got. Chris Wood was hungry. He was he was smelling blood once he'd scored that first one. He's coming for a lot of criticism of Forest fans as well. It was quite weird, really. I'd read a, a few. They, they just renewed his, his... Well, they've signed him on a permanent deal after three games. It was a, a weird three-game 
uh, clause in his contract. And all the Forest fans were saying he's done nothing for us. Da, 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 da. His first game since he's been signed on a permanent deal by Forest, he scores a goal against City and, and gets them a point in a game against the Premier League champions. So that rebuffed that for the Forest fans. But he was hungry and he came on with a point to prove. I mean, there's a striker coming on with a point to prove with the frame that he's got and with the power that he's got. And he thinks, well, there's already a, you know, the manager's already going to have said to him, you know, we can get at these, you know, get yourself about, you know, really, really, re, you know, really cause cause chaos. If if he wouldn't have put Ake on, I think we'd have lost the game 2-1. Honestly, I do, because it just, it solidified everything again. If he wouldn't have put Ake on when he did, we'd have lost the game, I think, because of the momentum switch and momentum change. But I think he should have put Ake on before the goal. And maybe that, again, is Pep overthinking it, going, I'll just wait another minute. I'll just wait another minute. I'll just wait another minute. And the other minute that he waited was the one that we were punished in. Louisa, um, you've you've heard what you know us three have said so far, and the trouble with being last is they might you might have nicked all your points. But <laughs> what what do you want to add to what you've heard so far? I've just forgotten everything I wanted to say. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, well, I I feel that the last three matches we've actually played amazing, and, and we're we're back to the champion. Uh, the champion winning team because we've had performances this season where we're unrecognizable and you cannot imagine that we have these skilled most some of the most expensive players in the world playing for us because they haven't played that way so I feel like like we're getting back to that and I also feel against Forest there were some incredible individual performances that then only made it 1-1. Um, I do feel there was that gap and I was noticing Grealish was constantly filling that gap. He worked so hard again in that match against Forest. He was the one filling it. He was the one running back. He was the one getting the ball back off, off the opposition, off Forest. Um, so that's not right because that's not his role on the pitch. So yeah, very much so. Um, I do sort of feel that that Foden and Bernardo can switch. They, they can both be on the wing and, and both be in the middle. And I did sort of feel like before taking off any of those that perhaps he could have switched them on the pitch to see if Foden was any better because Foden's very, very physical and, and quite strong. Again, nothing against Bernardo. He, he's, an, he's just mind-blowing. He's an incredible player, but he is not a defender. He's not a defensive player. And I sometimes feel that he he he's he's got in quite a lot of trouble over the past few years, got cards thrown at him because he can't defend well, because he just he doesn't get the ball, he doesn't reach the ball, he ends up tripping somebody up. They end up with a free kick, he ends up getting the card. So, you know, that's not his role either. Uh, so it's sort of a, a bit unfair to kind of blame him for any gaps. <laughs> um, so yeah, I agree with Aki coming on too late. Uh, but again, somebody like Ake has been working his backside off for the last few games and, and needs a rest himself. Um, but I also got to give massive credit to Forrest. Now, I do feel like a lot of premiership teams have got our number because we've been playing against them for so long. Somebody like Forrest comes up and they get promoted. They haven't played us for when were they last in the Premier League? And we probably weren't that good when they last played us. So I'm not sure. I'm, don't shoot me down for that one. My memory isn't well, that Sean good. Sean Golter scored the, the City goal at Forest last time we played there. So that gives okay. you an idea. 
there you go there you go point point proven um so in in one respect they don't have our number because that you know apart from the beginning of the season but but they've improved this season anyway incredibly and and they played amazing i'd have been happy if that was our performance the other night we can't win every game i agree with pep i agree with any manager in the world for any single sport that's out there whether it be hockey basketball whatever you cannot win every game so i actually sounds awful i'm gonna get shot down for this i don't mind losing games or drawing games if we play really good or we have all those great individual performances and the opposition plays really good i only really hate and get upset of losing or drawing games if if we're just not playing on the day and it's frustrating because i've said before in other podcasts that, that we've lost games other teams necessarily haven't won against us. We've lost games because we've played so badly or individuals have played so badly. So I feel that, that the other day, Forest rose to the occasion. They were very physical. They've come from a, a, a league that is more physical than the Premier League. You know, the Championship League, the, the leagues below are incredibly physical. They're still a little bit old school English teams that, that the whole all the leagues used to be so they've come up from that and we should have expected that kind of feel like we did we did have some physical players on on the pitch you know that can take a knock that can take that I think that's why he started Foden as well don't forget he's not played Foden and Grealish together at the same time for a, you know sort of not like that anyway not like he did the other day so I thought that was a, a big decision that he'd made that he probably did on purpose but Foden, my, the, what he was doing up that wing, I mean, he did have them spinning around and all over the place. And I absolutely loved that speed, that one touch, that accuracy, that pass, 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 pass. Still not quite enough long balls up to Haaland for me, but he was getting a few and he was getting some lovely little pass-ons as well to somebody else that might have been running up with him. Um, but I thought generally against Forrest, I... <laughs> Yeah, okay, we should have finished a few times. Of course we could. I've got I've got loads of notes here. You know, misses by Kevin, two misses, three misses by Kevin, you know, misses by he miss Harland in front of the goal. You know, it's like, oh <laughs> you know, I do have notes about the misses, the miss chance by Foden. So some of them could have gone in. We could have been five one up, but in saying we could have been they could have also have got a few more because they were quite good. And if they'd have just pulled it together a little bit as well at the end of finishing their players, then they would have also have got a few more. So I don't know. I think I think my little world was maybe it could have gone 5-3 if all them great goals would have gone in. I love your positivity. I mean, I'd certainly agree. I'll let Mark come back in a second, but I'd certainly agree that when we went to Arsenal in that game, is obviously a very important victory and City went there to win the game. And in the second half, they showed a huge will to win. And when City produced that intense pressing and that drive that they do as a team, they are as good as anybody on the planet. And they showed that against Arsenal. And actually, there were periods of that game against Forest, even though the end result was a one-all draw. So everybody walks away disappointed from a blue perspective anyway. Heard a lot of very happy Forest fans as walking back to my car, understandably. But 
I thought City's drive and pressing in that game at Forest was actually very good. And if they'd have scored a couple of those goals, which nine times out of ten they would have done, we'd have come away with a 3-1 victory or something, and everybody would have said, City, just as you just said so eloquently, Lisa, Louisa, that City are back, that you know that they're now on a roll. But obviously, the fact that Arsenal had just got two winners in stoppage time, which has given them a huge lift, and then City lose a goal late in the game to not, you know, even though they played well, to end up with only a point, the psychology plays on your mind, doesn't it? Mark, you wanted to say something? Well, I was just going back to the original point about City's defending. I think an Achilles heel for City since Pep started seven years ago has been the left-back position. Um, you know, he had Zinchenko playing at left-back when he was a natural midfielder. They adapted uh, Fabian Delph before he went off to Everton uh, to play at left-back. Um, Mendy, for obviously legal reasons, had to disappear out, the, out of the team. And he was a big investment. They spent a lot of money on him. And, um, you know, he was meant to be a solution. And then most recently, Cancelo, falling out with the club and jetting off to Munich. I think it's always been a bit of a problem in the years that Pep has been here, that left-back position. And I don't think we've ever really found the perfect solution. I you don't see Sergio Gomez as part of the solution then? No, I don't, actually. I mean, I was disappointed with the, his early games. Um, I think he was giving the ball away too easily. And I don't think he was very accurate with his passing. Um, and I don't think he was necessarily the fastest defender in the world either, coming back to, you know, to a deal with a winger. So um, I think the fact that he's been, well, he's not figured for quite a bit shows that obviously Pep has seen a side of him that um, uh, means he doesn't feel that he's quite up to it. I feel a lot more comfortable with Ake. Um, but then again, um, I'd like to see Stones playing with Diaz, uh, maybe put Ake at left back if, you, if you're playing four at the back. Uh, to me, that is a safer, a safer bet than risking. All right, you want to do well in midfield and support um, Haaland, but um, you know we can't overload midfield and then have a weak defence as well. It's, you can sort of cut a bit both ways, can you? Haaland. Yeah, I, I just, I, I mean, I look at the Gabby situation, and obviously Haaland was coming in, wasn't he? So obviously Gabriel Jesus was either going to be used as a winger, or or his time at the club was was done, and he was going to play a second. Second fiddle to, uh, to to Erling and and Al well third fiddle to to, to Erling and Alvarez he was going to be third choice in a in a in a you know in a one striker uh, forward line so Gabby's different you know we, we let him go to Arsenal um, looking back now I wish we we didn't let him go to Arsenal because of where they are in the division but of course I wanted him to go and play for Arteta as well and have a good career he's a good lad he's a nice player to watch and I want him to flourish and the best person for him to flourish under if it's not Pepe's Arteta. So fair play to win for moving there, but it's the Zinchenko one. I think Louise will have a, an opinion on this as well. Um, I don't quite get it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what's gone on there, me. Um, I, I look at it and, and yes, yeah, you know, we targeted Zinni on, on, on Wednesday night, Pep targeted Zinni on Wednesday night defensively because he, he doubled up on him. He caused him all sorts of issues with our uh, overlords on that right-hand side and their left. Uh, and Zinni made a couple of mistakes and, and we smelt blood. But all round for Arsenal this season, he's been pretty phenomenal. Um, you look at the movement uh, in the last game of the season to absolutely create the opportunity for Rodri's goal. And you look at how 
You know, I've watched it back loads of times since that, that game against Villa. It's exceptional what Zinchenko does on that left-hand side from that left-wing position. The way that he ball rolls the player, comes inside, picks out the correct pass, and then Rodri scores number two for us to then go on and win the game. The crossing again the other night against us, he whipped an unbelievable crossing for Eddie and Ketier, who couldn't quite hit the target with it, but it was an exceptional cross. Again yesterday, brilliant crossing, brilliant passing. Uh, good pass selection, which Mark was talking about then with regards to Sergio Gomez, playing the right pass at the right time, knowing when to play a more riskier pass uh, and when to play a safer pass, when to go back into your defensive line and when to play forwards and in between the lines and break lines with passes. That's all come from Pep and Zinni developed as a player. So why now are we all sat here talking about the fact that we haven't got a first-choice left wing-back or left-back when Bernardo Silva's filling in against Arsenal for us against a team who have now got our first-choice left wing-back playing for them? It just doesn't make any sense. And, you know, Zinni didn't do much wrong to, to you know, to, to, to us or to Pep or, or, or in a footballing sense at City for, to warrant being let go to Arsenal. For good money, don't get me wrong, it was around 30 odd million profit, which is exceptional for a player that we brought in for 1.7 from a, a very unknown Ukrainian side. But is the money more important than having that, like Mark said, that position filled where you know you've got a consistent performer that, yes, will make mistakes, but that you can rely on nine times out of ten? I don't understand why you... I thought this rule was never let your players go to, to a rival club, uh, and we never stick to that. We also don't stick to the fact that when we're selling a footballer, we, we, we make people bend over a barrel and pay us the money that we do for that player. Uh, I read this week that Cancelo might be allowed to go for much less than 70 million now and will be a really nice negotiating club where we allow Bayern Munich to take our player off our hands for a lot less than he's worth. Why? Why are we doing that again? We did it with Sane because he wanted to go. We're going to do it with him. Um, and and we've, you know, we've let other players go in the past for, for, for much less than they, than they were worth. So... A big problem for me is, is letting Zinchenko go to a title rival this season. And I think Pep realises he made a huge mistake. For the 30-odd million we got, I'd have rather kept him. I'll just chip in before Louisa comes in um, to say that having watched Pep's at close hand in press conferences so much, um, the one thing that comes over loud and clear from him is he is a human, he is a real human being manager. His whole modus operandus appears to me to be to respect people, which obviously I'm a great admirer of, um, and to, um, you know, to, to really appreciate human beings and not just treat them as commodities. So I think his relationship with Gabriel Jesus, with Raheem Sterling, who also, of course, went, and to Alexander Zinchenko, was not to stand in their way of progressing their careers, almost as a thank you for what he's done for them. And by doing that, he's leading by example to the rest of his squad and say, you do right by me and I will always do right by you and I won't stand in your way. And I admire that. Now, looking at it as a purely competitive thing, I can absolutely understand that selling you one of your best players to one of your rivals is the wrong thing to do. But, but Pep is a man of principle and, he's, and he seems to just want to operate in that particular way. And the other thing that I would say um, is that um, the whole sort of philosophy of, of Pep is that he doesn't at least publicly say he has a starting eleven. You know, he, he has a squad of players and consistently throughout his near seven years at City, 
he has swapped and rotated players and non, nobody really plays apart from maybe the goalkeeper in every single game. There's constant rotation. Every player, some players don't want that. So I believe that, um, and we've heard this anyway a little bit, is that Gabriel Jesus, Raheem Sterling, Alexander Zinchenko wanted to more game time. And if Pep had said to Zinchenko, next season, you're our left back. You, you are the left back, the, the, the overlapping one who tucks into midfield. That is your position. And nine times out of 10, I might just give you a rest now and again, but in all the big games, as long as you fit, that's your position. But he wouldn't do it, would he? He wouldn't say that. So Zinchenko moved on. So Jesus moved on. So Raheem Sterling went moved on. Ironically, this season, <laughs> I know you mentioned about the swapping about at the back, column, which I can't disagree with. But on the whole, I would say there's been a bit more consistency of the eleven this season, which seems a bizarre thing to say when you actually look at the number of changes that have been made. But I think a lot of them have been to do with like injuries, like John Stone's getting an injury, you know, players getting injuries. Obviously, Ruben Diaz, had a, you know, quite a long-term injury. So I wonder if it, actually he would have rotated less. Maybe he's learned his lesson from those players moving on. But, but Luisa um, Zinchenko, always been one of your... You've sung his praises for all the time he's been at the club really haven't you yeah I think it was just that first game that, that he put him in that position and everybody was like what's going on here what, what's happening and you know and then he obviously we do talk about that one mistake he made that led to a goal but the rest of that match he did nothing but redeem himself um and and after that I totally agree with you that if he was given that position and said you know look this isn't your natural position but you you take it you're in my starting 11 every match and go and own it because the one thing that I did notice about about Zinni was that he was he looked like a different player when he played for us at the back and then when he played in his more natural role for, for his national team, for, for Ukraine, he seemed to um, command uh, the team more. He seemed to sort of be, be captaining the team more for Ukraine. And where, whereas he didn't command the pitch or the role for City in that in that left, and he didn't he didn't do it in any position that he, he was played in because I feel like he didn't feel like it was his. You know, he didn't feel like it was his own. And I think sometimes when we talk about the psychology, we used to go into this quite quite a little bit deeper in, in previous seasons, is that I feel that the psychology is incredibly important for any sportsman, no matter what, what game they're playing or what, what they're doing. And I feel that a player like Zinchenko, who's incredibly sensitive, who's, who's a, is a different kind of man and human being to, to, to the next one, he would feel like he needs to own that role that he's been given and that's what the difference is at Arsenal uh, and we're seeing him blossom now we're seeing him flourish and and I think it's amazing to see and I get a bit emotional watching him playing for Arsenal because he could and should have would have been given that opportunity to blossom with us um, and I'm absolutely gutted that we let him go. I really am. I don't even know. It might have been some deal with, with Jesus. There might have been some part of the deal for Jesus to go and Zinni to go at the same time. We don't know what really went on in, in the back in the background. Um, but if it, if it wasn't that reason, if he's just let him go for the 30 mil, then I'll be forever devastated. We've lost players before. We lost Sane, as, as, ha as um, Harlan said. 
gutted he went. Yes, he had that injury. Yes, he didn't play uh, much that season. But once he got over that injury, you know, he came back an amazing player. And we've definitely lost out on players like Zinchenko before. And I really was hoping that we wouldn't do that again. And I wasn't hoping that we'd lose him. But if he's not guaranteed to start every game and he doesn't feel like that's his own position, then he's not he's not going to. But the one thing about him is he's such an intelligent player. Uh, he can, he's a bit like Kevin, you know, he's a bit like one of those players that's constantly reading the game, constantly creating the ideas, creating the opportunities. You rarely saw Zinchenko get tackled because he was already out thinking the opposition, opposite team. So he was already in spaces all by himself to not even be in a position where he was being tackled. He was like, surprise, here I am. <laughs> um, and that that's what was really great about Zinni. Um, and the, the, those kind of players are very few and far between. And I do feel like we've lost a good one. Well, we might come back and talk a little bit about football in a uh, latter part of the podcast. But obviously, one of the reasons why I've got Sir Mark Hendrick on is because he is an MP. You are an MP, Mark. You didn't know already. <laughs> um, and just recently, City were charged by the FA, uh, the Premier League, I should say, for over 100 charges, uh, which if they're found guilty and convicted, um, you will have read all the tab tabloid headlines that City could be, you know, uh, thrown into the Scottish um, League or something or, you know, all very extreme views. I, I doubt it's going to ever be as bad as that. But one of the, the strong views that a lot of people have had is that, um, that the timing of this Premier League investigation and it coming to a head was all to do with beating the white paper that the government was going to bring out, which all started because of Super League and, and the, the, the challenges and the government wanting to prevent something like Super League happening. Now, I always feel I did a I did a video with Colin Savage, who is a, um, a financial expert um, a couple of weeks ago, which has had a lot of views and a lot of people have, have, have appreciated that. And Colin's a, a good man who I've spoken to before. So check that out if you've not already seen it. But I, I admitted in that video and I admit now that I'm a little bit out of my depth or feel like I'm out of my depth when it comes to things like this. But Mark, you are an expert, you are an MP, you are a City fan, a football fan. So you can give us a little bit more insight into all this. First of all, can you give us any background into this to, to, for people who don't know? And secondly, what, what is your view of the, of the, the timing theory as to, to why it all happened when it did? Right, well, <clears throat> to give you some background, um, the, um, <clears throat> the Government Commission um, a fan-led review uh, that they promised in 2019. And uh, I pulled out an executive summary of that review uh, off the internet today. And on the front page there, you'll see a picture of Berry Football Club. And um, really this review um, came about as a result of three things. The first thing was um, concern over the way Berry, Berry uh, had gone to the wall. Uh, a club which was founded in 1885, like City, very old club, um, heart and soul of the community where it was, um, major employer in the area, um, thousands of people gutted away this this club had disappeared. So part of the, the, the idea of this review was to lead to this white paper that's come out, um, which will look at the governance of football more generally, because they wanted to take a holistic view of the way football 
was wrong. The second crisis, because the, the, the summary outlines three, three crises. The second crisis was the COVID-19 crisis, which again, a lot of football clubs fell into great difficulty. A lot of clubs on the continent actually went to the wall, uh, but it caused great problems in this country too. So it was COVID-19. The third thing, and really I think the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of making sure the government does something about this, is the bid for the European Super League, which incensed uh, a lot of uh, clubs up and down the country. So those were the, the three background things to it. Now, this uh, fan read review was meant to feed into the government's white paper. And whilst there's only been leaks of this white paper, and I understand the speculation that the white paper will be published next week, um, we are fairly confident, I think, that um, it will lead uh, in the 19, sorry, 2024-25 season to um, an independent regulator for the governance of football. Now that <clears throat> is anathema to what I call the red cartel, your Man United, your Liverpools and your Arsenal's. They have been controlling football in this country for a very long time. They're the major influences in the Premier League. And um, apart from the fact that they've tried to juggle the Premier League rules in the same way UEFA have tried to juggle their financial governance rules, what they don't want is um, this being done by statute and by an independent regulator, independent of the government, but also independent of the Premier League and the footballing authorities too, because they see it as treading on their toes telling their businesses how to, to run their affairs. And of all the, the big six, if we can call them that, in the Premier League, it was only City that actually supported the idea of an independent regulator. So they thought they'd be clever and they'd make an example of City. I said, well, you know, if that's the case, you know, even though they've been doing the best to jiggle the spending rules to suit themselves, they've already over decades had major investment in their clubs. Um, they don't like the idea of the, the government stepping in, uh, producing a regulator with a remit that's quite wide, and um, then telling the football authorities how they should run their affairs. Now, one of the things that's quite controversial, well, there's a few things quite controversial in the report. Um, the first thing is that um, we've had this wrangle for many, many years between the Premier League and the Football League about how much of the money should feed down through the football pyramid, through the Premier League, into the Championship, and down trickle down through the rest of the clubs. Obviously, the EFL have always thought they've not got enough. The Premier League always thinks they're giving them too much. Now, what will happen with this regulator is that if there's no agreement between the Premier League and the EFL, then they've got what they call backstop provisions, which will allow the regulator to step in and dictate effectively how much of that money does go down to the smaller clubs, but it's a championship uh, and the other two leagues, uh, they will determine that. The other thing that's very controversial is the parachute money. Now, at the moment, there are five clubs in the championship still benefiting from parachute money. And obviously the rich prizes that the Premier League gets um, in terms of the you know, being members of the Premier League and getting an amount depending on where you finish in the Premier League. 
Now, apparently, 20, something like 90, 90% of the prize money that's given in football, 90%, oh, well, actually, I think it's 92%, is given to those 25 clubs, the, the five that are on the parachute payment and the 20 that's in the Premier League. And the rest of the championship and the lower divisions are getting peanuts in comparison. Now, Rick Parry was formerly with the Premier League. He's now chief executive of the um, of the Football League. Also used to be, as you know, on the board at uh, Liverpool many years ago. Um, he's battling with the Premier League to try and make sure that the Championship and other clubs further down those divisions get a bigger share. But one of the things that the clubs don't like is apart from this, this regulator telling them what they can and can't spend or how they should run the, the, the spending rules, uh, telling them how much they have to give the lower divisions as well. So that's just a flavour of what's in there. One other thing, <clears throat> much more emphasis on fans. They're talking about giving fans a golden share. <clears throat> now, this would belong to the fans' trusts, which are set up a bit like cooperatives or mutuals. And those fans then would have say and would, they would set up a shadow board and those fans on that shadow board, which is monitoring obviously what the board of their club is doing, would have a say then in, if they wanted to, for example, change the colour of the shirts as Cardiff did under, under TAM, or if they wanted to change the badge, or they suddenly wanted to move location, or they wanted to sell their stadium. So the fans would have a lot more say in that. And again, that's worrying many of the clubs. Uh, the, the idea of this golden share that there's a, an effective veto that fans can have in certain areas of governance. Now, at the moment, we've not seen the white paper, but these are the recommendations. The white paper will adopt some of them, I'm sure, but others it won't. But then it's got to go to Parliament. You know, we'll have to debate it in the Commons and then it'll go to the Lords before it will be implemented in time, I believe, for the 2024-2025 season in the future. But do you think that's that just a gist of it. You, with that, that's brilliant that you've just explained that. But with all that uh, as the background to it, then um, obviously the the Premier League bring all these charges. Is is that the Premier League then? I won't say making stuff up, but 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 you know trying to make a point by what it's doing to try to prevent all that action. And on that basis, then do you think that this is just flimsy and City fans can can be? less concerned about it? Well, uh, first of all, I think, as I said earlier, I think it's an attempt by the Premier League to make it look as though it doesn't need regulation. It, it, it doesn't need governance. It's quite capable of making its own decisions about how they should be governed. But I think as well, by making out City to be a transgressor or some sort of renegade in terms of we've handled the governance at the clubs, um, they're give, trying to give the impression at least that they can look after themselves and they don't need an independent regulator sticking their nose in. So I think that's the whole basis of it, apart from the fact that they don't necessarily like cities, uh, the way cities have behaved over the years. Now, I mean, like I said, I, I believe this is, as I call it, and others as well, the red cartel, just trying to look strong and macho uh, and we'll, they will be saying to the government and the Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport that we don't really need the government getting involved with this. We're quite capable of doing it ourselves. But I think certainly the, the government at the moment, the Conservative government is in favour of it. We in the opposition, Labour, are in, in favour of it. 
and with the exception of Liv Truss, because Johnson said he'd, he'd follow it, and Sunak has said that they will follow this and that they will most likely press for a regulator. Now, obviously, there's a whole parliamentary process to go through yet, but um, there's a good chance, as I say, that this will be published next week, and then we can, you know, look at the detail that's in there and uh, chew it over as it as it goes through both houses. Who's going to win this power struggle then, Mark? And and how's it? How are City going to come out of it? Do you think? Well, from City's perspective, the fact that they want an independent regulator tells me that they're doing things pro properly and correctly. I mean, I can't think of any other business in the world where you can say to your competitor, I'm sorry, but you can't make that investment in your in your company or your club. Um, now, it's one thing bringing in financial fair play to say, well, um, you know, we don't want clubs going bust like Berry or, or other clubs that can't afford it. But if you can afford it, why should you stop, stop clubs who can afford it making that investment in players to, to improve the team? Now, there's a very interesting clause in this, and I'll just fish it out uh, here because it made my eyebrows, well, it raised my eyebrows. And it's to do with the financing of football. It said, under the proposed new approach, a club would be able to invest in order to seek to improve its competitive position. But this will no longer be able to be, be to, cam to gamble with the club's future. For a club to do this, the money would need to be in the club up front and committed. Further, the reviewers concluded that, on balance due to the fragile state of club finances, if the activity of one or a few profligate clubs driven by owner subsidies are objectively assessed as being destabilizing to the long-term, sorry, long-term sustainability of the wider league in which it competes. Then the IREF, this is what they call in the regulator, the independent regulator for English, English football, should be able to block further owner injections on financial stability and proportionality grounds. Now, I don't know if this is included in the white paper and whether or not the government wants to back this. But to me, that sounds a bit of a threat to, to the likes of City and other clubs that want to make that investment to turn themselves into bigger clubs instead of the clubs that were there before the new owners took over. Um, it could be an obstacle. Um, now, that's just a suggestion that's in the, the fan-led review, but whether or not it's reflected in the white paper and whether or not the government will support it is, a, is another matter. Fascinating stuff. Um, obviously, Harlan and, and Louisa have been sitting there silently listening to this. Um, what, what do you make of all this, Harlan? I mean, you, you obviously have you know, died in the wall blue, um, and I know you care very much about football generally. Uh, what, what have you made of what's happened and what you've just heard from Sir Mark? Well, it, it, it's it's annoying, isn't it? Again, that this has reared its ugly head. You know, this kind of um, grandiose that the other clubs have got, where where we are the only club that have spent money or invested. Or look, let, let, let's have it right. Let's 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 put the cards on the table, which which is what I want Caldoun to do now, and and just say right, gloves are off. Let's 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 have this out once and for all. Um, English football at the top level stinks, to be honest with you, right now. And even as a 29-year-old, um, obviously working working at Bolt Wanderers, growing up and going to Boundary Park with my granddad as a kid and seeing EFL football and seeing League One football and then comparing it to the Premier League now, I'm able to, to kind of, rather than look down on them, look up at the Premier League and go, what has this, this league and what has top-level football become? 
I remember yourself and a, a lot of other fans Ian, saying that during COVID they reevaluated what football was actually about, um, and whether us being able to attend football matches or go to football ever again or whatever it, you know whatever may happen as a result of the the two years that we weren't allowed in or one and a half years whatever made us look at football different. And I've certainly grown older and realised that top level football for me is becoming quite dog eat dog, but in a very kind of it's not it's not what happens on the field. It's not it's not about what happens on the field. Com- competition on the field, you know, a bit of ferocity in the stands between fans, a bit of rivalry. Nothing wrong with that. But when it starts getting, um, you know, like this, where you would you would you know you would you would genuinely want to just stick the knife into a club that you don't factually know have broken any rules, but that you just want to sign up and, and create a little. Um, you know, you, you, I look back when the club signed signed the document saying that, that we should be investigated again and, and Pep's called these clubs out. You know, creating little packs of clubs where you, you know, it, it's, it's us against the world and, and, and that kind of thing. When we were City that were trying to qualify for the UEFA Cup knockout stages against the likes of TNS and Lockeren not 20 years ago, and we were that club, you know, we were the Wolverhampton Wanderers or without that investment that Wolves have got, by the way, um, that we're just trying to get in Europe, the Crystal Palace. Um, we won the lottery. Nobody's disputing that. We did spend over and above what we were, able, you know, what 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 we had FFP have been in 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 two thousand and eight. Um, over and above what that ruling or them rules would have allowed us to do. But Chelsea now have got a two year goodwill, I believe. Tell me if I'm wrong, Mark. I think Chelsea get a two year goodwill to spend as much as as they as they as as they can or as as Todd Bowley wants before FFP comes into play. Um, what it does do, though, it, it prevents the likes of Sharon Britton at Bolt Wanderers that save Bolt Wanderers from investing money into the club to 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 go and invest into the playing squad and that that you know the transfer budget, and that's understandable. You know, you, you should only be able to spend, you know, relatively what you're making in revenue. Um, there should be some kind of limit on what you what you can spend on transfers. But I just I just find that that there's a lot of hypocrisy at the top. Of, of, of football now there's a lot of he you know he said she said if they said it then it must be true and the fans get on board with this I remember I was having a chat about Liverpool fans back in the day when that rivalry started the media drove that rivalry the, the, the comment sections on social media are laughable um, whatever is reported is believed um, we as fans we as City fans especially I feel are like an army of, of City fans where we've constantly got to grab our shields and defend ourselves and I don't get involved in any of the arguments anymore. It's all it's all codswallopy, and it's it's. I can understand what you're saying because a, a great example of that you, you've absolutely nailed it is that there was an Arsenal banner, uh, basically anti-City, um, you know, saying about spending oil money or whatever, and yet the you know the one of the main sponsors is Emirates, which is from the Emirates. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, and of course, and and Manchester of course. United could be bought in the this next few it. weeks by. Uh, you know, uh, the Qataris or, or a group of Qataris. So suddenly they'll go from saying oil money's bad and this sort of investment's bad. And you're suggesting, I don't know if it's true, maybe Sir Mark can give us an insight into it. You know, will United then, if, if, if that's what Chelsea are getting, get two years to spend what they want? Well, if they Ian, get Ian, new you, money made coming in? you made a point a couple of years ago. I think it was when, when the UEFA ban came in place. It was actually Valentine's Day, weren't it? And me, you, Paul, I think went to Bolton FM and did the recording that night. And I'll never forget you saying that, you know, the 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 
the these clubs that are, that, that are created, you know, there is a cartel, as Mark eloquently said, you know, there's a cartel that want to bring us down. But if if these clubs want to point the finger at us and say, investigate City, we sign up, we're, we're you know, we're with you, Premier League. Oh, you know, we are Premier League clubs. We will fight against City with you. We will create this massive pack of wolves to bring City down. Then, then the Premier League must think if they want City to go down so badly, then are they trying to get rid of the competition? And that should then arise, you know, raise suspicions of, well, you know, why do you want City out, out, out the way so much? If they're going to open our books and they're going to look at everything, get everyone's books open. Let's have a look at everyone's finances. If you want to clean your league up, Premier League, yeah? If you want to clean your league up and you want to make the top level of English football the cleanest, most unbelievable football league in the world with the best books and the best financial fair play regulations in the world, then let's set the record straight. Let's get everyone's finances out. Let's have a little, you know, clean through everyone's books. And then once everyone's books are as clean as they can possibly be, we'll start again. But you can't just go at one club because how many other clubs are going to fly under the radar because we're being used as being used as a diversion tactic? I can't help thinking that as well as the new money being the thing that the cartel, the, you know, the red clubs um, object to, I can also I also believe there has to be an element of racism in this because Russian money was all right, American money's all right, but Middle Eastern money isn't all right. That 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 seems to be a thread to me as well. Or am I seeing the wrong thing here, Mark? Well, there may be a bit of unconscious uh, bias, if I can put it as diplomatically as that. Well, we've seen with Chelsea now. I mean, the Russians have been moved out, obviously, because of the associations with Putin. He sold the club to Americans. And I think there's a big push as well. Well, there's two really big things going on at the moment. I think the Americans, um, big, big American business interests, see the Premier League and sport generally in Europe as a, a big money spinner. And I think we'll get more and more Americans like at Liverpool, like at, uh, at United, coming in and trying to get a piece of the action uh, in the Premier League. I think that's happening already. Um, now, the accusations against the likes of the Saudis and um, Abu Dhabi uh, and the Emirates is that um, this is just to try and give the, you know, them a, a good image because there are human rights issues and things like that. Well, I'm sure, uh, you know, these accusations are thrown about. And whilst I think obviously there's, there's some grounds for making accusations of that nature, and I, I didn't particularly think that the, um, the World Cup should have been held in Qatar. But I think as long as the clubs are run here properly and the following rules which are meant to benefit everybody, not just to discriminate against a few, which I think that's what's happening with the Premier League, then to me, that, that should be okay. Um, the other thing that's happening, and it's sort of pressure from a different direction, is this European Super League thing hasn't gone away. I mean, they've gone now from saying that they want 15 clubs in there <clears throat> permanently with five to be added on merit, if you can call it that, to now saying it's talked to over 50 clubs and they want 60 to 80 clubs in this new European competition that will be played midweek with a minimum of 14 14 games per club. Now it's gone from one extreme to another. And what you've got is Juventus, Real Madrid and Barcelona flapping around all over the place and look at ways in which they can compete in the Premier League. Because I think they've given up in many ways um, 
trying to generate the sorts of finance that the Premier League can do because of its international television sales. What they're trying to do now is create something that is bigger than the Premier League across Europe. Now, they're hinting that you know, British or English clubs can go into it, but actually what they're talking about is coming under the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, which actually this A22 group, which we believe is basically controlled from Real Madrid, Barcelona and Juventus, have taken them to the Court of Justice there to talk about, is this cartel that's going on with UEFA, is it legal? And that's what the European Court is looking at now. Now, we're no longer in the EU, so that's one reason why we might not get involved with it if it did go ahead. But the second thing is we're not actually subjected to the rules of the Court, court of Justice now because we've left the European Union with Brexit. So there's the European pressure there. There's the Americans want their way of doing things. What the Americans would like is what they originally uh, proposed, which was this permanent 15 clubs, almost like an American football, where it's sort of a franchise system and we'll tell you what you can't do and what you can do. Whereas in Europe, what they want is more of a much more of a free market and a genuine market, uh, less of a cartel, even though UEFA is a cartel, but that is going to be challenged. I mean, these things change over time. I mean, you think back to the Bosman ruling. Do you remember where, um, you know, they were stopping a player from being transferred because more or less they said, well, you know, that's our player. We, you know, if, you're, if you've got a job, you can you want to resign. You can, can resign, they can't stop you going somewhere else because they're saying you're tied to that club or your registration's tied to that club. So European law is actually affecting a lot of the way football can and can't be governed. So when players were coming to the to England from France, Germany, these places, you know, you couldn't just limit how people came. It's that's you know, we had free movement. Now obviously that stopped, but at the moment we're getting players from all over the world, so it's a bit academic, but um I do think it's the European influence and the American influence which is forcing the Premier League, uh, but at the same time, they don't want to learn to do what to do by an independent regulator. Fascinating discussion. And, and although we're not fixed in the amount of time that we can do on this podcast, I'm going to call it a day simply because for anybody listening to this, I don't want to be sitting in, sitting in the car, if listening in the car or whatever, and never get out of it. So I'm not even going to allow Louisa and feel really mean, Louisa, for not bringing you in at this point. But I think we, there's so much to chew over and think about there that you've brought to the table, Mark, tonight, which I really, really appreciate. I'm going to leave it there. I feel as if it's a discussion that's going to continue on at some point, and maybe we get you back on again, Mark. Um, but I think we're going to leave it there. Uh, so just before I say goodbye, and remember, by the way, it's free to subscribe to this, and we do a podcast every week. So if you want to listen to the podcast regularly, just subscribe. Just click on the subscribe button, share, and all that sort of stuff, and then it'll just drop in your inbox every week. It makes it a lot easier. Uh, but And that's due to Howard Solicitors, based in... Uh, offices throughout Greater Manchester and Cheshire specialise in areas of the law that affect the individual. So it's like that if you need some help or guidance, they'll have somebody that can help you. 01618729999 or howardsolicitors.com. So with a huge thank you to Louisa. Sorry for silencing you, Louisa. Um, you forgive me, don't you? Yeah, I totally. Yeah, don't worry. Politics isn't isn't my thing. I know it's certainly for more sense to politics, and I'm staying away from that. I'm not getting involved. So thank you for not asking me about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't deliberate. We just ran out of time. But Louisa, thanks so much for your time and your analysis. Same to you, Harlan. Um, always worth listening to what you've got to say about yeah, football. Thank you. 
Nice to meet you, Mark. And to Sir Mark Hendrick, who's been our special guest today, who, if you'll agree to it, Mark, not saying next week, but we'll get you on again in a, in a few weeks and see, see what's going on and see what other insights you can give us, because yeah. that was fascinating. Well, I think it'll be running for quite a few months, this one. Yeah, I think it will. <laughs> in the meantime, well, we haven't even mentioned it, but City play Leipzig uh, in midweek in the first leg in Germany, the Champions League uh, knockout stage, last 16. Of course, I'll be over there, so look out for the YouTube vlog that I do um, from from Germany. I'll give you a little insight on what's what the city's like. I remember I was due to go there last time, and obviously it was played behind closed doors. It was a dead rubber, um, and so I didn't. I decided in the end I was doing some stuff for Indian television. I could have gone over, but what, what's the point when the game's a dead rubber? The city's closed down, and the game's meaningless. So this will be my first trip to Leipzig. I can't wait for it. So. Thanks very much for, for listening. Uh, thanks very much to our fantastic contributors. And, uh, of course, on the optimistic note that Louisa gave us, City have been playing really well and, uh, and they're getting a lot better just recently. So I have every optimism that this title race and all the other things that City are in are a long, long way from over. So um, keep the faith and remember this, if you only remember this one thing from the podcast, if you don't remember anything else you've listened to, just remember this. It's great to be a blue. Mm-hmm.